Open your Bibles, please, to Ezra. Two more Sundays in Ezra, and then we move to a four-week topical message series about worship. So two more this Sunday and next about Ezra, four weeks on worship, and then we begin for the rest of the year, all the way till about Halloween-ish, um, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Looking forward and falling in love with Jesus all over again. I can hardly wait. I love Mark. Alrighty, as you're finding Ezra, uh, let me ask you a question. If I'm reading Wikipedia, which is not always the most trusted resource, it's not exactly the Encyclopedia Britannica, but if I'm reading it correctly, what do Howard Cosell, now that's going to date me and some of you, what do Howard Cosell, Rodney Dangerfield, Mama Cass, mamas and papas, that'll really date you, now let's move up, Juice Newton, the author of the P2P BitTorrent Protocol, some of you may have no idea what that is, others will know, the father of the neutron bomb, and everybody know this, and the Ben of Ben and Jerry's ice cream fame, what do they all have in common? What do every one of those folks, and I mean that's pretty diverse across ages and things they've done, what do they all have in common? Well, what they have in common is the last name that they were born with. Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. It's a name that's derived from a Hebrew word for the word priest, except it's with a K in English, K-O-H-E-N. And a priest, a specific type of priest, a priest that's a direct descendant from the very first high priest, Aaron, the brother of Moses. Okay, Jim, that's fascinating. What's your point? Well, priests and Levites dominate dominate today's text, and I figured it might help us a bit if we have a little bit of background in order to see this through. So buckle your seatbelts for just a minute. Let's walk through a little bit about the priesthood. We all know that Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Levi, as in Levites or Levitical priests. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. Now, skip two generations. Levi is the great-grandfather of two people we know well, Moses and Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. So his great-granddad was Levi. Now, Aaron had four sons, two of which, one and two, who were going to be high priests, offered an unauthorized... um, offering, strange fire, your King James Bible will call it, and God killed them. The other two who survived were also high priests, and all of the males in their families became priests of the tabernacle and later on of the temple. As such, they offered sacrifices. So whenever you read about a priest, a Kohen, whenever you read about the priest... All of them have to go back to Aaron. They offered sacrifices. They served as teachers of the Mosaic Law. And they performed other ceremonial and quite a number of other judicial functions. Now, that's Aaron. But what about Grandpa Levi and all of his kids? Well, the Levites were set apart by God for tabernacle initially and later on temple when the tabernacle was no longer and Solomon built the temple, 
They were set apart for tabernacle and temple duties. They were the porters. They carried the sacred furniture. They were the guards to the door of the temple and the tabernacle. They also acted as teachers of the law. They did things as officials, as singers. They were the musicians. They did a host of other duties. They were the Levites. So you had the priests. Every priest, every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. So, everybody who had great-grandpa Levi and those two sons, they became priests. They were all sons of Levi. But as you read in the Old and New Testament, you've got the priest, the Cohen with a K, sons of Levi. I mean, excuse me, sons of Aaron, who is a son of Levi. But when you see Levites, that's this other set set apart by God. They actually stayed true to the covenant, to God and to Moses at the time of the golden calf. And God set them apart at that point. So, Levites and priests. Even the high priest is a Levite in that sense, but he's a descendant of Aaron. So, with that in mind, now we'll kind of turn to our text. So, if you put up the title slide today, we're going to look at three strikes and your... In Ezra 8 is a stunning display of human failure, but of divine faithfulness. That's what Ezra 8 is about. It is stunning about human failure and human weakness and human inability. Not all failure is sin and divine faithfulness. So we're going to look at strike one. Swing and a miss. Failed priests and defeated kings. That's verses 1 through 14. Then strike two. Levitical losers. And that's definitely me. 15 through 20. And strike three, we're going to look at insecure immigrants because that's what they were. And then finally, we're going to see how God takes them all home back to Jerusalem. So before we do all that, let's pray. Father, I need your help. We need your help. I need your help to preach. We all need your help to understand. Lord, to listen, to understand, to apply, to do, and then to disciple. There's a lot of stuff we're supposed to do with everything we read and hear in your word. Lord, it gives us comfort, it gives us conviction, and it gives us our marching orders. All at the same time, and nearly every single time. Lord, comfort, because it comes to us, for those of us that are followers of you, Lord, it comes to us because we can't hear your word like this unless we're saved and your spirit is in us. So the fact that we hear shows we're sons and daughters. What comfort. We don't have to do to hear. We hear because we are in Christ. And Lord, that brings us conviction sometimes because we all need to change. But Lord, your conviction is, is not just the discipline of a spanking. It's the discipline of the gymnasium. At times you need to discipline us. Other times we receive this as discipline to make us stronger and more productive and fruitful for you. And Lord, it always is marching orders for our own heart. But Lord, not just stuff to do. But Lord, change us, transform us from the inside out so we can be reflections and we can represent you. Lord, we want, we, want the, we, we want people to walk away with the taste of Christ 
as they interact with us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, pardon me, I've had a cold all week, and from time to time, you'll either hear the rattle of a cough drop, or I'll need some coffee, or all you're going to do is hear coughing. Hold on. You know what? Let me get a twofer going on. There we go. All right. Oh, my. That's one of these big cough drops. Now it's small. All right. My job, my job for the next four weeks of preaching is to make you miss Al so bad that when he comes back, it'll be, oh, thank you. So it'll be wonderful. All right. Let's remind ourselves that the events in Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, remember we left with chapter 7, but the events of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, that took 100 years to cover. I mean, that was over nearly a century, those six chapters. So that's why it would be, where are we at, and which episode are we in, and which king are we discussing, and is this a flashback or a flash forward, or is this something, you remember that. Okay, here's the good news. We're done with that. Um, So now we're in Ezra 7 through 10, and these, these chapters deal with a single year. They happen inside of one year. So there's no flashbacks anymore. It's just one year. It's linear now. Now, this Ezra 7 begins about 50 years after Ezra 6. So we've had 100 years, and within that 100, we've scooped 50. And now we're not going to look back anymore, but we're just going to look back a year. Ezra 7 ended with, if you have your Bibles open or turned on, look at verse 27. Ezra was blessing the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. They're going back to Jerusalem to beautify the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem. It's, been, it's got people there now. It's built. It's 50 years later. Second wave's coming. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king, his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage for the hand of the Lord. My God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. That was last week. This week we're going to join Ezra as he journeys now to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, think uh, Kenneth City, no, yeah, think Cooper City and Florida City combined. That's the population, about 49,000 people. And a second wave are in Jerusalem now waiting 50 years to another wave of immigrants come. And here they come. It's going to be about 3,000 of them. And they're going to be transporting a lot of royal gifts to be placed in the temple. And what we're going to see in that is God's mercy and faithfulness in spite of their failure, in spite of their inability, in spite of their ancestors' past sin. God's covenant mercy and faithfulness on full display. So, let's look at strike one. Failed priests, defeated kings. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Now, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm not reading any of the hard words. So, we're just going to blow through. You ready? Verse 1. These are the heads of their father's houses. Remember, I'm taking the leading men and others. That was chapter 7. Here we go. These are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Now it gets a whole list of people. And this list of names and this, these numbers, they match back in chapter 2 during that 100 years they were looking at. They match back in chapter 2. But this time, 
They're arranged differently to make a point. This new wave of immigrants, folks who were in Babylon, we have to remember, because of Judah's disobedience to God's covenant. See, that's why it's failed priests. They didn't keep the law. They actually worshipped other gods. Defeated kings, the dynasty of David is dead, done, and gone. Israel has been carried off into Assyria years later. Judah now has been carried off into Babylon. It's over. They broke faithfulness with God. They disobeyed the covenant. Strike one and you're out, apparently. And God waited for years and years and years. It just wasn't, hey, you did it once, you're gone. Not at all. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to talk to them and to warn them and to tell them. But they didn't listen. And now they're gone. But now these people who are dispersed are now objects of God's mercy and His covenant faithfulness. There were promises made by God that He's keeping in spite of their disobedience. In spite of their sin in spite of their rebellion. See, these are descendants of failed priests, defeated kings, but they're offered a place back in the purposes of God. And this, this list now, it's changed a little since chapter 2, same list, but this one is highlighting the number 12, as in the 12 tribes of Israel. It's highlighting the two priestly lines, the sons that lived, the two priestly lines that are descended from Aaron. And it even in this list has a single descendant from King David. The remnant we learned about back in Romans, remember that? This remnant has survived. And now God is sending a second wave of survivors there. Who wants to, he wants to point his mercy and his riches and his faithfulness to, and he's sending them back there to help them form the nation again from whom the Christ will come. No nation back in Jerusalem, no Jesus. God is faithful to his promise to Eve that that someone else will come from you who will strike the serpent. God is faithful to Abraham. God is faithful to Noah when he redid it all again. He is faithful to the promises he made to them. And the point of this in Ezra for us is we see how Ezra keeps repeating himself over and over again and throughout Scripture. Here's the point. This is how God deals with his people. And that's good news for me. Because I fail and I'm defeated, and I feel dead, and I don't deserve mercy. I don't do what he asked me to do. I'm glad it's a new covenant, but I don't keep his commandments. I need to know that this is how God deals with his people. We reap what we sow. We get spanked. We spend time in the gym. Welcome to Hebrews. But he only disciplines those he loves. And that's what he's done to them. But guess what? They get back in. They're his people. And he's faithful to his covenant, even when they're not. That's why it's a covenant mercy. Of covenant mercies we sing, I come with your righteousness on. That's why those songs are like that. That's what they're speaking of. This right here. So the remnant will come. And they will form again the nation. And Jesus will come. They're still, in spite of strike one from their ancestors, they're still receiving covenant mercy 
Let's look at strike two. Levitical losers. Now we know who the Levites are. We're going to discover they're real losers right now. Here we go. Verse 15. As I gathered all these people, the leading men and their families and others, as I gathered them together on the river that runs to Ahava, and when we were camped there three days, as I reviewed the people and the priests, okay, there's the sons of Aaron, as I reviewed the people, the Israelites, and these sons of Aaron, I found there were none of the sons of Levi. Remember last week, 713, the king said, a pagan king said, I issue a decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including their priests and Levites, who want to go to Jerusalem, may go with you, Ezra. Now Ezra discovers that there are no, no, no Levites in this group. Now, Ezra knows the law of Moses, the invitation of the king, and the incredible kindness of God that's been offered to these people to return to Jerusalem and escape Babylon. So where are the men and their families that are set apart by God to assist the priests? Where are the men and their families that Ezra needs because the king says you can take these Levites and do their traditional job as judges and magistrates, and they can teach the law? Where are these guys? Seriously, dude, you prefer exile in Babylon to restoration in Jerusalem? What are they thinking? Well, he doesn't get mad. Instead, he coaches and he sends leaders. Leaders who have insight into the law of Moses. Leaders who have influence with those Levites. And they make a biblically-based appeal to these guys. Hey, guys... Let's look at what the scripture says. Let's look at your job description historically. Let's look at God's covenant mercy to you. Guys, guys, relocate. We need you, and God's offering you covenant mercy. You guys are a bunch of losers. You don't even want to come. And instead of just kicking you to the curb, God's having a special invitation. Listen, get back to your calling. And God moves on some of them. And it's a small amount. But they're impressive. This small number who respond, they head out. See their their approach, they pray, they prep, they join the others, and they head out, leaving everything and everyone in Babylon behind. They've been living there a long time. With seven days notice. Do the math in the text. From, hey guys, I need to appeal from scripture. To, okay, load the donkey seven days. That's impressive. These Levitical losers who didn't even want to do what God had graciously offered them, they're still receiving covenant mercy. Strike three, insecure immigrants. Now, we use insecure differently than traditionally the way the dictionary uses it. So it's not, oh, will Levi love me? No, that's not the insecurity we're talking about. Okay, what we're talking about is they're not confident in themselves. They understand that they're weak and they're unprotected. Look at verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there. So he's got the crew together, and here's the Levites. I proclaimed a fast there at the river that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, 
and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told our king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Look at verse 25. Here's what they did with the stuff. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his lords, and check this out, all Israel, all the ones in Babylon, had offered. Look at verse 28. And I said to them, the guys he gave charge to, the Levites and the priests, that's their job description right now. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. Now you see Lord is, is different than sometimes you see it in English. That means think of God's name to Israel, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He says, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. That's covenant mercy right there. The father, they're in Babylon. The fathers had deserted and disobeyed God. It's, it's yet again, look what God does. They're in Egypt, and they plunder the Egyptians, and there's an exodus. Now they're in Babylon. This time it's their own fault. They deserve it. God should have wiped them off the earth. But no, what does he do? Hey, you're going to plunder not the Egyptians. You're going to plunder the Babylonians. And just like in the first exodus, I'm going to put it in the hearts of the people to give. Just like when the temple number one was made, I put it in the hearts of people to give. And here's what's happening again. See, this... Yes, these are non-repeatable attempts in salvation history. I get that. I can't claim everything here. But in Ezra, God's pattern comes out on purpose to give you and me hope that if we're losers, if, if we have a bad past or people have done things to us, guess what? God still gives covenant mercy, and you can still be included back in his purposes. So he tells them, guard them and keep them, verse 29, until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, there's the elders, at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord, the temple. So what do they do? They fast and they pray. They don't, they're insecure in the right way. They don't trust in their ability. You see, they don't have anything. <laughs> they don't have there were a bunch of exiles dominated by a foreign king who got tapped on the shoulder. And they'd heard 50 years ago another group of them had went. And, and they want to go do that too. But they, they've heard about the opposition. And now this king says, hey, by the way, follow Ezra. If you want to leave, knock yourself out. And people are going, I don't know if I want to go. Levites are going, no, I ain't going. What, are you kidding me? Do you know how long that is? Do you know there's enemies there? So they gather together, this little group of about 3,000 people, not the millions that left Egypt. 3,000 people that are headed to the population of Cooper City, the kingdom of God on earth. Imagine, let's go to Cooper City. That's where God lives. I mean, it's nice, but really, God lives? I can't afford to live in Cooper City, but it ain't God lives? How's that for... 
yeah, you know, we want you to go to Cooper City, surrounded by enemies. Yes, here we go. So they don't trust in their ability, and they don't have a military escort to protect their families. And it's a dangerous route. And by the way, did the math last night. They're carrying 3,000 people. They don't have trucks. There's no armed guards. They're going over a pretty long journey that's filled with enemies and bandits and thieves and all this kind of stuff. They're carrying 25 tons of silver and 3.75 tons of gold. Last night, when I looked that up, I don't know what today's gold price are and silver price, but last night when I looked that up, that was the equivalent of, it's these combined totals, $148,598,331. Now, I know that's your salary for one year. <laughs> I'd want armed guards. I'd want Apaches. I'd want everything. Why would having an escort be forsaking the Lord? It's in the text. And if you've read Nehemiah, as Al's told us to check out both, you'll find out, hey, wait a minute, Nehemiah had an escort. What's up with that? Well, see, Nehemiah went as a governor. He was a court official. Ezra had official permission, but he was on a religious mission. Ezra had told the king about the powerful hand of God to protect and to punish. You see, Ezra knew his Bible. Israel and Judea, back in the past, Israel and Judea were punished by God with exile to Assyria and Babylonia because they had relied on foreign powers, forsaking God by entering into a covenant with Egypt, Assyria, Babylon for military protection against their enemies. A covenant that involved pouring out libations to foreign gods, idolatry. Ezra knew he could have no part in in repeating this sad and sinful history. You can't do it again. And the offerings, well, they became holy because they were given to the Lord. And now they must be treated in accordance with the law. Ezra knew his Bible. Hence jobs for the priests and Levites who were given a sacred trust, a trust that involves holy items to be presented to a holy God by men who are set apart. They're consecrated. Another word for made holy. So what does Ezra do? He reminds them of the fear of the Lord, not the king or the enemies. But Ezra is also above reproach, and he's responsible to the king and the other donors, both Babylonian and Israel donors. He weighs everything. Why would he weigh all this stuff? Well, remember, their coins didn't look like ours. Coins and vessels were not mass-produced, and they could vary in their amounts of precious metal. So he just weighs them all, so he'll give a good accounting. Oh, strike three, the descendants of Punish and exiled Judah who don't have the ability to protect themselves. They can't protect the holy offerings entrusted to their care. If, if, if they don't depend on the Lord, it's, they're out of the game. And yet what do they do? They cry out to God because if they don't, they're going to fail miserably. And by the way, they're going to die. And they're going to be sold back again into slavery unless God shows them covenant mercy to weak people who can't do it. And know it. 
And how sad. Oh, this is this this author I was reading about this wrote this, and it's just like, ah, crud. Now, he didn't say the words I'm going to say, but how sad and how stupid. Those are my words. To reject the world, but fail to seek the Lord. I'm not going to be an idolater, but I'm not going to cry out for mercy and help. Is that you? That's me. I'm not going to sin, and I'm going to follow Jesus kind of on my own. Oh, that's stupid, isn't it? So they seek him, and he answers and takes them home. Last verses. Look at 31b. Repeating theme throughout the text. The hand of our God, remember last week? The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes, by the way. We came to Jerusalem. And there we remain three days. Look at verse 35. At the time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel. There was twelve again. Ninety-six. Da, 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 da. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. Thirty-six. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's saptraps and to the governor. These were official guys in Babylon. Of the province beyond the river, which is what Palestine was known as. And they aided the people in the house of God. See, God answered their prayer. Three strikes and you're out. No, no, no. Three strikes and you're in. You're home. God protected them over a four-month and 900-mile journey. They arrived. And they rested for three days. And then they handed over the holy offerings without incident. Nobody, nobody was light-fingered. You think all 3,000 of them were the just perfectly sinless Jews? They made burnt offerings. <laughs> Remember, they're offering things they've got to eat now. There's no Walmart. And they submitted themselves to the authority and the scrutiny of the local government as well. Mission impossible became mission accomplished because of the gracious hand of the Lord that brought them safely home. So, that was them back then. What about me and you right now? Can we possibly apply this to us? I mean, (laughs) I don't know about you. My part's not quite that grand. I'm not going to Jerusalem to establish the nation of God. I'm, I'm, because I'm sick, I'm going to go home and take a nap. But you know what? My part may not seem as grand and glorious, because it ain't. But my failure and my need for God's covenant mercy, this time in the new covenant, a better covenant, mediated by a better high priest, oh, greater than Aaron, Jesus isn't the high priest out of the order of Levi. The law is gone. There's no more priests. The law has been superseded by the new covenant. And he's after the order in Hebrews of Melchizedek. That's a priest who was a king and a priest. He was selected by God. And he mediates a better covenant. One that we celebrated today. Purchased by his blood. Cohen may be a great name. Christian's even better. And I'm in him. See, 
God continues to show remarkable mercy to those who repent. And if you're a non-Christian here, those who repent for the first time. And if you're a Christian that's kind of not doing well and hasn't been doing well, and even if nobody knows, those who repent for the first time in a long time. Three strikes and you're out? No. It's covenant mercy. It's based on the cross, the new covenant in his blood. So here's my question for us. Have you struck out? Now, you may not have. So think of somebody that needs hope this week and listen for them. Not to accuse them, to bring them hope. Have you struck out? Well, let's look at this. We'll roll through this quickly. Three strikes and you're in. Remember, it's a stunning display of human failure. I count. Divine faithfulness. Okay, let's look at strike one. Does your past, here's failed priests, these are their ancestors. Does your past or someone else's sin, your personal sin or someone's sin against you, does it still haunt you? Does it still swing and a miss? You think, that happened to me, I can never really be like, really a Christian like them. Or, I did that, and I'm now just like, I, I, I repent every day, all day. I just never get. Well, no matter what you've done, or what's been done to you, you can feel, still find your place back in the game. See, God is the God of second, third, and fourth chances to those who will seek his help. How sad to be moral. How stupid to be moral and not seeking his help because you're believing a lie. (laughs) Strike two, Levitical losers. Done? Okay. (laughs) You ever had this? Whether it's relationships or something with people, whatever. Something God's called you to do just because you're a Christian, like love people. Um, Just because you're whatever. Not necessarily some special thing, but if it includes some special thing. Are you just done, done with doing what God has called you to do? If you're really honest, do you prefer Babylon to risking it all again? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. No, the sufferings of Christ, which you're called to participate in, if you're a Christian, the tribulations you were promised, the sacrifices of being his follower, take up your cross every day, die to yourself and follow him. The riches of relationship with him now, fellowship with his sufferings, and hello in heaven? They're worth giving it up all over again. Risking it all over again. I'm no different than you. I want to chuck it in so many times. Not Jesus. I love him. It's you I don't like. Uh, Not you personally, but you know. Listen, in Revelation, the book of Revelation, it talks about finding your first love again. How about this? Why don't you fall in love with Jesus all over again? And when you fell in love with him the first time, kind of like the loser Levites, they gave it all up and walked away in seven days' notice. Why don't you do that 
today. Either for the first time, repenting your sins and trusting Christ and quit living your own life. Or quit living like you're a moral person that is still going to heaven. I'm not worried about that. But really, you're fine hanging in Babylon till he takes you home to the New Jerusalem. That's sad. And can I, as lovingly as possible, say this next word? Because it is when I do it too. It's stupid. Don't do that. Strike three. Insecure immigrants. <laughs> oh, we're, we're aliens. We're sojourners. Our citizenship is in heaven. You know, we're immigrants too of this earth. We have a kingdom and a city whose builder and maker is God. I'm an immigrant. You're an immigrant. And you know what? <laughs> I'm as insecure as you are. I have no power, no strength, no, no ability. I'm scared. I'm unsure. Yep, if that describes you, got some hope for you today. Just like for them. God's not a respecter of persons. God is ready to help you too. Oh, how sad for you to have come this far rejecting the world and resisting the devil. It's good. It's true. But how sad for you to have done that so long. And now falter in seeking the Lord again. Listen. God wants to give you help and hope. He did it for them. He'll do it for you. Pray and seek him now. And ask him to protect you. And ask him to provide for you. And last but not least, he'll take you home. The hand of our God, Ezra 8 says, is for good. That's our takeaway question. Do you believe for you, you, you? Do you believe that God's hand is for good for you? Even if you're a failed priest, defeated king's a Levitical loser, and you're an insecure immigrant. Is God's hand still for good for you? Now, there's a clause there. On all, for all who seek him. Whether it's the first time ever, first time in a long time, or you just need to do it again today. His hand is for good. I love John 10. It's not going to go on the screen, just here. God's going to take you home. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, Jesus said, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Oh, listen to 2 Corinthians 4. For all this light and momentary affliction, and it's real, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but as to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient. But the things that are unseen, they're eternal. God will treat you the same way He treated them. He'll offer you fresh covenant mercy when you don't deserve it. <laughs> Look, if while you were yet a sinner and a rebel, he died for you, how much more now? One of his dumb kids who are being stubborn or whatever you're being? 
How much more? Because it's covenant mercies. It's because of the cross. We're in a new covenant and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. So if this describes you, let me offer you hope. His hand is for good. You can get back in the game. It's scary. You don't have the resources. You may not want to. Stuff's been done to you. You're suffering for the sins of others. You're suffering for your own sin. I got it. Not minimizing that. Covenant mercy. Covenant grace. God's calling you back. And I don't even know what... I don't have an, I don't have an end game about what this game should look like. This is not a setup to do something else. I'm talking about just falling back in love with Jesus. And what is the thing God wants you to do again? Or the thing he wants you to risk again? Or the thing he wants you to let go of again? Or pick the category. I don't know. It's whatever he's talking to you about in your head and your heart. That's probably a good place to start. So as the band comes forward and we sing before the throne of God, let's pray. Whatever that is, you pray about that. Now, Lord, (laughs) um, we need hope and we need help. And Lord, if right now we're not a place where we need hope and help, Lord, we need help to talk to someone who needs hope. Because Lord, we hear sermons, we read your word, we listen to you. Lord, we, we do that for ourselves. But we take the comfort you give us and we're called to comfort others. Lord, Ezra needed to talk to the Levitical losers. You were talking to the whole nation. You sent them into exile. Lord, they needed outside intervention that you caused to happen with the king. Lord, it's complex. It's multifaceted. It's just not easy. It's not a one and done. So, Lord, there's no universal application here. But, Lord, I need fresh hope, and I need fresh help. Whatever category that applies out of the ones we've looked at. Lord, take us home, not just to heaven, yes, to heaven. But Lord, bring us back to the place of undivided devotion to you. Lord, maybe we're just really comfortable in Babylon. Lord, maybe a a church or a person did something to us and we drifted and now we filled our lives and our children's lives or our parents' lives or our spouse's lives or our head or our heart or our bank account or our yard or our attic or every weekend with stuff that's not sinful in and of itself, but it's taken the place of you. Don't let us be a loser. We're a kingdom of priests. Let us get back to our work. It's a privileged and holy place. We're a holy nation set apart unto God to display his works and his righteousness and to teach and train others the Great Commission. Let us do our job. So, Lord, I don't know the answer. I don't know the application. I want to entrust us all to you right now. Speak to our hearts individually.